You're listening to Not Small Things, a weekly-ish conversation about the overlooked or under-discussed, but actually really important things impacting women today. I'm Kristen James, or KJ. And I'm Dara Aubard, or Dara. (laughs) Nice nice touch. (laughs) Today for our first episode, we're going to be reflecting on this really historic moment in time the things that we're feeling, the things that we think were quietly groundbreaking about the way Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ran for office, things that have really stuck with us from the inauguration day and beyond, the not so small things that have kept us going for four plus years, the things we hope to never talk about again or see again. And finally, the one thing we're looking forward to the most. Before we get to that, though, why don't we take a step back and tell our listeners a little more about us and how this podcast came into being. The origin story. So you and I have been friends for a while, having met in one of those secret groups that formed during the 2016 election. And over the course of the past few years, and especially the past few weeks, we've had a lot of conversations about seemingly little things that actually when you unpack them, are really very profound statements about where we are as a country and a society, and specifically where women are in this country and in our society. And after our last conversation, I think I said, wow, I wish we had recorded that so we could replay it for our friends. At which point you suggested starting a podcast. Which is kind of weird because I'm notoriously challenged when it comes to listening to a podcast, people recommend them to me all the time. They are impossible for me to sit through unless if I'm on a plane. And the only one I've really managed to listen to is West Wing Weekly. Um, But here we are, three days, two mics, a Squarespace template later, and we're ready to go. Yeah, and I hear you on the podcast because Really, the only time I ever used to listen to one is when I commuted to work, which, of course, I don't do anymore. So, And, of course, there's a story behind the name we chose for this podcast, too. We were toying with a lot of women-centric names, which is partly because you and I have also been working on a social impact initiative to help support female office holders. So that was our frame of reference. But many were not quite right or already taken. And just as we were getting frustrated, my 11-year-old daughter came to show me something she had written for her remote class, a reaction to that image of Kamala Harris walking aside the shadow of Ruby Bridges as a girl, and it just clicked. In answer to the question, what does this image mean to you, my daughter wrote, it means that all little girls can grow up to do not-so-little things. And voila, women doing not-so-little things, but also... The little things that affect us, that move us, that change us, and that in the end are not so little. That's what Not Small Things is about. Exactly. And I loved that it just emerged out of nowhere. It comes from your daughter. It comes from this moment in time. Though the brand strategist in me who has to name things for a living wants me to also tell people this is not usually how it happens. It's usually not super magical. It's usually not just straightforward. It's usually not available everywhere. So I have to like get into this defensive crouch of like, it was easy, but it's unusual. Well, this was kismet, clearly. Kismet. Everything about us is kismet. 
So with that, let's start. And I'm going to offer the caveat that we're going to talk about a lot of things today, probably not do any of them justice. In the future, you know, we're probably going to come back to some of these things and do it in not so jam-packed of a way. So first of all, I want to start with how we're feeling in general, because on the night of the inauguration, I was seeing all of this reaction to what was happening. People were overjoyed and over-emotional and just feeling so cathartic. And then you put something on Twitter that was really unexpected to me, but also I immediately understood it. And I think we're at a time that we need to make space for feeling all of the feelings. Oh, big breath. Um, yeah. I mean, in general, I am hopeful and certainly relieved, of course. But on Wednesday night and then again all day Thursday, when I thought I would be in this euphoric and celebratory mood, I'd been looking forward to it forever. I think I had posted something months ago about how the day Joe Biden took office, I was going to de-age by like 10 years. It was going to be better than Botox. And I really believed that. And then I just felt empty. Like I had spent, you know, four plus years really since Donald Trump came down that escalator in 2015, was it? Or early 2016? Time is meaningless. Time is meaningless. Who knows? Um, I had spent all this time pouring energy into resisting. And then, of course, this past year also, you know, raising kids, maintaining a household during a pandemic. And that, I think, keeps a lot of demons at bay, right? Because who has time for self-doubt or social anxiety or even comprehending the full horror of the pandemic when democracy is literally on the line? And then suddenly I felt like I could take a breath, but that breath I was inhaling just didn't smell as sweet or as fresh as I expected it to. Um, and all this return to normal just got me thinking about how normal really wasn't that great for a lot of people and how we couldn't really go back there anyway because normal was 400,000 plus people ago, you know, back in normal times, quote unquote, I had a mother who passed away during this period. And I had a best friend from college who passed away during this period. And that's true for so many people. I just, I don't know. It was this, it was this kind of crushing realization that so much of what I had just powered through was hitting me. And I do think in part, it was a reaction to the chasm between what I felt in the moment and what I expected to feel. And another part of it was definitely sheer exhaustion, but for sure it was, it was heavy. And you wrote a very kind acknowledgement of these feelings that per usual say, said what I was feeling in a much more elegant way. You, you always find these words in a way that I cannot, but yeah, it was, it was yeah. unexpected. I'm terrible at naming my feelings in real time. And sometimes somebody else being able to do that kind of snaps me into a moment where I'm like, well, what's going on inside of me? And my therapist would applaud me for even admitting that naming my feelings is 
something that I struggle with. And after all of the delight wore off and certainly the kind of also holding my breath that whole day, waiting for them to just get safely into the White House, um, it really started to set in how close we were to seeing something unthinkable on January 6th, which I watched in real time and I, I believe you watched somewhat in, in real time. And I am really struggling with that. But also I was raised in a family with a grandfather who was a World War II veteran. He served in the South Pacific in the, for the Navy in the Marshall Islands. But he was a public servant. He worked for GSA and he coordinated the planning and building of presidential libraries. And I grew up in a family that talked about politics a great deal. He taught me to really respect these institutions, to respect the office, no matter who was sitting in the office. And until things started to look institutionally normal again, I just really hadn't tapped into how painful it's been to see so little respect for government and the people who spend their lives serving that larger purpose. There was a night where Lawrence O'Donnell had his last word be a video that somebody had created that was the incoming real world White House staff kind of superimposed on the old West Wing titles, a show that I loved because it was about the larger purpose of public service. And I just really lost it at that point. And it is why I am really grateful for what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris represent right now. Yeah, I, I had this thought that nobody really, nobody really loves a government until it's gone, <laughs> you know? Um, and I guess one of my biggest fears is that too many of us don't learn that lesson. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's been so much talk about specifically Joe Biden's capacity for empathy and the pain that he's endured. His personal story just hangs over so much of the way that he behaves in his public life. It occurred to me at some point in this campaign that he has been this amazing antidote to years of white male toxicity that really has come to a head during this administration. Um, and he's really, for me, normalized men operating in a different way, being emotional in front of other people. And I just admitted, I am not always great at being emotionally in the moment, being somewhat affectionate with his family and with others, but also open to changing. He received a whole lot of feedback during this race about how if he wanted to be a, a president for these times, he needed to have a reckoning with where he's been on race, where uh, being affectionate has boundaries, how you know, you can't be a just a bully answering a bully, which was sometimes his tendency. And that's been kind of amazing to watch. 
a white male leader take in that data and react to it and come out into an inauguration somewhat different than than when he came in. Yeah, it is refreshing. And I I think it's so much more refreshing. And I'm glad that you kind of paired his capacity for empathy and his ability to show emotion with his ability to listen, truly listen to criticism and to change along with changing societal norms. Because I think that's the big difference in terms of his leadership style from, let's say, a George W. Bush, who was also openly emotional and affectionate with his family and by all accounts, a fairly nice guy, but didn't necessarily connect that with a capacity to learn or change the way he governs, the way he leads to benefit more and more people. Um, I'm sure there's much more to unpack there, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Joe Biden is the first person to show that kind of emotion, but I think he's the first person to lead with it. Yes. Yes. That's, that is a very accurate way to frame it. The real pivotal moment when the field was huge, some people thought too huge, but there was a moment in a debate, of course, where Kamala Harris called him out for school busing and did it in a way that just kind of shocked everybody. And it ended up being this really, I think, genuine moment between them. And it speaks volumes that she said it and he took it in, he responded in real time, but then chose her as his running mate. And and not only did it for, you know, optics or its strategy, but has made so much space for her. And we're starting to see him, you know, he said this, this is going to be a bridge candidacy. And we see him building that bridge for her in real time and sharing power and sharing duty. And we're starting to see in real time what it looks like to have a woman and a woman of color lead. And that feels like there's that saying that, you know, you always think when an apple falls off the tree, it feels like it happens fast, but really it's just the time it takes for that apple to become so heavy feels like it happened all at once. Um, and it happened very suddenly, but it's been so long in the making and he played a huge role in, in bringing women over the finish line, which is what a great ally should do. It's huge. And it seems very adult, (laughs) you know, after the Trump administration, it's so generous. It's a very generous style of leadership, which is not something we're used to after the last four plus years. And certainly in the Senate, um, even longer than that. I don't think women are used to generous male leadership in their real lives either. I mean, Frank. obviously there are some. Hashtag not all men, right? <laughs> but but um, 
yeah, I mean, I, it's certainly not the norm. And, you know, this space he's making for her, it shows he fully understands that Kamala is the future. And Black women in particular are the future of the Democratic Party. And it's a huge part of why he was elected. And not just elected, but elected with enthusiasm, right? As opposed to just a lackluster, he's not Trump vote. And, you know, if you look at the group of Black women all across America who have already stepped in to lead or who are just waiting for those gates to open so they can just push through and take the reins, it's it's a really important moment. It feels a lot like the leadership I thought we'd only get from electing a woman president. Joe Biden was not my first choice. He wasn't my second choice. He wasn't my third choice. But in many ways, he has shown the kind of leadership I was looking for in the female candidates that I backed. So I'm really very encouraged, frankly, to see this coming from an old white man. And I really do hope that he sets a new norm. Amen. You had said something about Joe being concerned with his legacy. And I remember I recoiled a bit because maybe thanks to Trump, I've come to view the term legacy as something so self-serving and just in general, just encrusted with bad connotations. And I wondered if it was more that Joe was just keenly aware of how little time he has to fix all that's broken, whether because Democrats might lose one or both houses of Congress again in two years or because of his own advanced age, right? He just doesn't, he doesn't have that much time and there's a lot to fix. But now I think we were actually saying the same thing. It's just that you were viewing the concept of legacy in a much more generous light, like whether or not you believe in an afterlife where you will be judged, we all hope that on balance, we will be remembered for doing more good things than bad. And Joe Biden is just now in a position to do a lot of good for a lot of people, which must weigh heavily on him. And that's probably what legacy should mean. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't see it like that immediately because I do generally tend to be a Pollyanna and I just chalk it up to leftover skepticism born of this era. Yeah, I chalk my viewpoint up to two things. First of all, like I said, my grandfather built presidential libraries and I have, you know, brochures or the invitations and the programs from their opening nights. And that's part of, you know, his legacy that I've, inherited. But I also do follow that Lynn manuel Miranda definition of legacy, which is a legacy is planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. Um, and I, as we were talking, I also wondered if maybe this kind of awareness of time was a part of selecting a portrait of Hamilton himself in, in the Oval now. There's a founding father who was so prolific and urgent with his time. And I love that Biden picked a portrait of, of Hamilton to, to sit in the Oval Office. And of course, I can never think of Hamilton in some ways without thinking of their performance 
as the Obama administration was leaving, that musical and, and that administration are kind of so tied together in, in my imagination in so many ways. Yeah. And speaking of Hamilton and Lin-Manuel and the significance of what that musical has done for us culturally, we now in the real world have a White House staff that looks like America more or less. We have 52% people of color on staff in an administration. I am so wildly comforted by this. Like I think the more diverse our government, the better it represents not just people who don't look like me, but also people who look like me, frankly. Like more voices, more perspectives equal better government, better decisions for all of us. And also because we love to rejoice in the small things that actually aren't small, let's recognize that we went from Hamilton, where a huge part of the novelty of the show and the appeal was the multiracial cast and that that multiracial cast made a point about race. Like it was, it was definitely front and center to Bridgerton where we have a multiracial cast basically just because like it's, it's barely a part of the plot. It just kind of hangs there in the deep background being awesome. Like it's, it's so refreshing. It's, where I hope we get to in government that it just doesn't matter. Um, I realize that there are drawbacks to being completely race blind because it doesn't acknowledge past wrongs when it comes to government. But in the cultural sphere, in the things that all of us are watching together, it's so cool to just have it be normal to see a multiracial cast. And I hope it gets to be normal where we see a multiracial government. Like we shouldn't go back. Yes. I'm going to put on my systems thinking nerd hat for a moment. Go for it. I'd say one of the things that I learned during my 40% of a master's degree at University of Pennsylvania that I have yet to finish is that when you are rebuilding systems, which we have multiple systems to rebuild, if, if you don't really go about it in a specific way, inevitably you rebuild a system that leaves out the people who need the system to be restructured the most. And it's one of the, the very first watch outs when you're, when you're thinking about systems. It's really important that when we're talking about healthcare and education and the environment and racial justice, and even as Pete Buttigieg has said, transportation equity, it's really important that the people at the table represent the people who need the system to be restructured the most, and that they have a voice, that they're not just there as tokens. So this is hugely promising to me as we think about revamping so many systems that don't work for so many people. Amen. And I think I think this was part of why I was feeling like I don't want to go back to normal. There was an article in New York Magazine last week that talked about how, particularly for Black Americans, going back to normal is just another betrayal because normal was just not good. For a lot of people, particularly Black Americans. And so we have to be better than 
normal. We have to show real progress on this. And I, I think this government will go a long way towards making that happen. Yes. But we are still in this world of firsts. There was so much to celebrate about all of the ways Kamala Harris is breaking glass ceilings. And I adore her. But one of the things that I personally love, and I, I think this is something that as women, we need to be better about with one another, is she's a stepmother and an auntie. And she's demonstrating that there are other ways to mother in this world that don't necessarily mean having biological children. There is this weird voter breakdown when we talk about white women voters, this soccer mom vote. And I always bristle a little bit at that because I always think, gosh, you just don't need to be a biological mother to care about what happens to children. Like we are normally aunties, we're sometimes stepmothers, we have our closest friends have children. Just because I don't have biological children means that I shrug at gun violence in schools or you know, don't care that, you know, one in five children go through the day hungry. So I really appreciate that there's this different paradigm that she's walking into, that she doesn't have biological children, but she is a very strong voice for women and families. And to me, that's just, you know, definitely not a small thing that she's doing. For sure. And I think, this is one of those topics that I that we're going to have to come back to because there's so much to unpack here. And I think that the impact of everything Kamala does and stands for and brings to the table is just going to become clearer and more forceful over time. So watch this space. Yes. And she also is part of this amazing, they call it modern family, where they are very close to Doug's first wife, who was actually attending the inauguration as part of the family, which I thought was incredible to see. I don't think everybody who who splits and co-parents has to follow this model, but I think it's amazing to see that those models are extremely possible. They are possible. I mean, the way that Doug supports her so beautifully and this inclusion and mutual respect that they promote as a family is, like you say, a model for families all over the country. But I think it's also a model for the whole country, right? I mean, if you think of the country and the citizenry as a macrocosm, is that a word? <laughs> macrocosm of a family, we're, we're fractured, right? we're really fractured and we're of all races and all ethnicities and uh, religions, right? This is an interfaith couple and the way they make it work. It's just another example of empathy and mutual respect and adulting, right? They're, they're adults. Yes. And that is all underneath her, also being incredibly capable for this office. She would have made 
an amazing president. And so that there's all of this other stuff to look up to and, and see her as a role model is just, you know, I never thought I would get over not seeing a president Hillary Clinton. And this is going a long way for making up for 2016. Indeed. And she's my like er emerge sister. So <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm super psyched. I, I was that little nerd who when she first announced I sent my resume. <laughs> I sent my resume to her website and I was like, oh my God, I'm going through the emerge program. Can I come work for Kamala? And I didn't hear oh. that. But I won't hold it against her. Yeah. To be <laughs> honest, you you had to have been hoping that she was gonna jump out of her car. Do they also call the VP car a beast? I, I missed that. I don't know. Beastess? Beastess. Vice beast? <laughs> she would jump out of the vice beast and just be like, whatever. It's a parade. The drum corps is here. I'm in chucks. Like, I know you were wearing your chucks. I was marrying my Ruth Bader Ginsburg chucks, my RBG chucks from the Ab in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I really wanted her to walk in sneakers. I'm going to be honest because I need people to know that, first of all, it's okay to be short. <laughs> Second of all, it's okay to be comfortable. It's a parade. I mean, Nina's husband got to wear Nike Dior Air Jordans. Amazing. And I saw one of Joe's granddaughters wearing sneakers too, um, both in the parade and also with her dress in the evening, which I thought was so cool. And it was clear that Jill Biden, for instance, was super jealous because her feet were obviously killing her. Like, she looks so uncomfortable. I actually thought originally when she got out of the car to walk with Joe to the White House that she looked totally petrified for his life, I imagined. Yes. And I'm sure that was... Partly true and also partly projection on my part because I was terrified for him. But then a lot of people were like, no, 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 her feet just hurt. And I was like, yeah, 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 that too. I mean, those stilettos, man, I don't get it. We're still in this moment as feminists where we want to be taken so seriously and we think that loving fashion takes away from that. But I think there was so many powerful statements made through clothing that day. And for me, listening to Joy Reid talk about the clothes was this other moment where I realized how heavily this has weighed on her particularly these years. Because all of a sudden there were all of these notes in her voice that I don't think I've ever heard before. And I don't recall ever hearing her that happy and there was something about that that just landed so powerfully for me so I'm going to ask who's look we all talked about Michelle Obama which is you know whatever she looks amazing no matter what she does um whose look did you love that just isn't getting as much airtime Oh my goodness. First of all, this makes me think we're going to need to do an episode for award season. <laughs> and I'm getting excited already. Like um, mark your calendars. We have an Oscar show to do. And you know, one of my dream guests is Joy Reid. So 
maybe we can combine those two. But hmm, best underrated look. So I actually loved Mina Harris's look. She came runway ready in that green, I think it was Ula Johnson. I had to look that up, obviously. Um, but it was so romantic and she's wearing those sparkly silver boots. It was very glam with a capital G. Very romantic, like I said, but also rock and roll at the same time. I loved it. Um, my favorite look during the swearing in ceremony was Michelle's, like you said. I mean, she definitely came to slay, but, 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 but Hillary looked amazing and she is getting erased from all the graphics celebrating that day. You know, like all the, the, the cute um, illustrations that show Michelle and Jill and obviously Kamala and then Lady Gaga and Jennifer Lopez and Amanda Gorman amazing, all well-deserved, but like, no Hillary. Harumph. Oh, I'm also obsessed with Ashley Biden's tux look at night. She looked stunning. It was very Meghan Markle, who you know is also one of my dream guests. But who, boy, again with the stilettos. I'm, I have to say, I'm really jealous of women who can wear those. I do think they look amazing but I could not last five minutes in those. My bunions would never allow it. I cannot last more than, I don't know, maybe a half hour I used to be able to, but those days are long gone. Um, I'm also gonna say I loved Mina Harris as well. I think prairie glam chic is a thing you don't see very often. <laughs> But I also loved it was high and low and monochromatic, which is straight out of our other idols playbook, Miss Jenna Lyons. So I felt like this is just everything that I learned watching Stylish by Jenna Lyons, a whole thing that we also need to unpack in its own episode. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Hopefully with her. That would be awesome. I'm, but I agree. I'm totally behind people favoring comfort, especially on such a long day and a very cold day. Um, so Bernie and his mittens, you know, it didn't really bother me. It's become a huge meme. It's probably the first of, you know, zero times that I've been delighted by him, which is not a, a small thing. But what did bother me is his just, scowl like he had this look on his face as if this you know the the kind of reboot of American democracy was the last thing he'd rather be doing and I know some people we know have talked about that double standard of you know women can't really show up like they were just in between errands you you know wouldn't be able to get away with that really but his demeanor was more offensive to me and he looked miserable on just such an important day. And that was another thing that I thought none of these women would ever be able to get away with that look on their face. And there's that one moment in the last inauguration where you had like a split second where Michelle Obama's face 
accurately described what she was probably feeling inside. But Hillary Clinton couldn't go to the last inauguration and look anything but gracious. And that will will never stop getting under my skin. Yeah. I mean, not a chance. She can't get away with anything remotely human. <laughs> she just, I mean, this woman cannot get a break. And, you know, Bernie, for all his disheveledness, that that alone never bothered me. It was the double standard about women not being able to show up that disheveled. But like, even when Michael Moore shows up on television looking like he just rolled out of bed, and I realized that women could never do that. And he's talking nonsense, of course, which also always bothers me. At least he's cheerful about it. I mean, Bernie, seriously, why so angry, man? Lighten up. Yeah. <laughs> we won. You're a meme. You have amazing mittens. Like, cheer, cheer up. Yeah. Buck up. <laughs> so what are some other lesser talked about moments that stuck out for you about that day and the days after? Let's see. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure this was lesser talked about because there was actually an article about this. I think it was in the Times. I can't remember. But the whole thing about men not wearing masks that don't slip under their nose. I mean, what is that? Seriously, do they not know that masks come in larger sizes? Do they not understand the concept of a nose wire? I spend a ton of time trying to figure out what the solution for Bill Clinton would have been. And it was a longer, like broader mask. But he runs a global initiative that deals with healthcare. And he had such a lousy mask. I'm going to chalk it up to like, maybe they just haven't been leaving Chappaqua, but it was, but Hillary's mask was perfect. Of course. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. And he wasn't even wearing glasses. So we can't even have the like, oh, but they fog up my glasses kind of excuse, which of course is also BS. It's the new man spreading. Totally. Um, You had mentioned, and I totally agree with this, that the one televised celebration at night instead of multiple balls, just like the one convention that was um, virtual, felt so democratic and... I really hope we never go back, frankly, to multiple invitation-only balls the night of where, you know, we are lucky to act as a fly on the wall. And it feels so, I don't know, so elitist. Yeah. At a time when elitism just really doesn't have much place in government anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a paradigm I'd love to see shift, even though like a lot of people, and obviously we've already talked about fashion, there is something amazing about seeing such a elegant celebration of a new administration. And especially when it's people like the Obamas or the Clintons or the Kennedys who are young and fresh and you know the country is just so full of hope those moments are are really important but having these more accessible 
moments of elections and inaugurations felt really important and it felt like a great moment in time and and we're doing it because we have to now but I really loved it and I know I felt like especially the the convention felt really intimate because of it. I loved that convention and I'm one of the people who would actually sit and watch previous conventions like all what 48 hours of them. (laughs) I was so grateful just to be able to like sit and watch two hours a night. It was genius. I loved it. Don't go back. Don't go back. If we had not have had the inauguration night like we did, we never would have seen, which I think was my favorite moment, is when the fireworks were going crazy at the end of Katy Perry's song. And he looked like he was losing his mind over the fireworks. He was throwing his head back and laughing and just his whole body was in it. And I was like, that's what I want my 2021 energy goal to be is Doug watching fireworks. Those fireworks were insane. They were insane. And of course, with Katy Perry's song in the background for them, I was just, I was feeling all the feels like the energy was flowing through my body. That was the one moment on Wednesday night where I did not feel empty at all. I was filled up with just complete joy. Speaking of filled up, I have to talk about the Diet Coke button in the Oval Office that I never knew about. (laughs) Okay. I feel like for real, can we be real? I feel like that was a regular Coke button. And at the last minute they were like, oh, let's tell everybody it's a Diet Coke button. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know. Is he a big Diet Coke fan? it, Uh, It does have a certain truthiness to it of people who live on fast food but quote unquote balance it out with a diet coke here's what really confuses me and i'm going to assume that this is one place where the tv show the west wing was fairly accurate because this is also how like offices work there's intercoms and he has how many assistants like the fact that he didn't want to push an intercom and ask for a Diet Coke that he just needed it summoned out of thin air. It reminds me of um, John Mulaney has this amazing bit about when people ask him if celebrities in his experience are nice from his years of working on Saturday Night Live. And he's like, no, they're, they're not nice. They live in a completely different world. And he tells a story about the time Mick Jagger hosted And he would just in the middle of nowhere, like yell for a soda and it would just appear like instantaneously. And he's like, when you're Mick Jagger and you've been famous for that many decades, like you don't want to have to like do more than you have to. And it just was like, oh my God, he actually out Mick Jaggered, Mick Jagger with that button. It just. You just paid him the highest compliment. Like he's. He's been in public life for however many years, just hoping that he would be compared to Mick Jagger. So I'm going to have to meditate on what I just did. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe he can go away now. He's done it. He's, he's reached the pinnacle. (laughs) I feel incredibly guilty that I have done that to one of the great loves of my life, Mick Jagger. I'm glad you 
qualified who you were talking about. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny after all of these years, I just kind of came out and was like, you know, I didn't think he was that as bad as you did. <laughs> that that might have ended our friendship, I, I kind, though. You know, I kind of like the fake tan and the whatever that hair thing is like, I, I love them both. You know, there was an article early on in the primary in 2016, I'm forgetting the name of the woman who wrote it, but it was a whole article kind of diving deep into the history of his, his weave. That was in Vanity Fair. Okay. That was the greatest article I've ever read in my entire life. And I swear somebody needs to option that article to make a movie kind of like that movie Dick. Do you remember that movie? Yes. Oh my God. I loved that movie so much with Kirsten Dunst, right? Yes. And Will Ferrell as Bob Woodward, I think. <laughs> that movie was so great. And I feel like whoever made that movie, I need to look it up. Whoever made that movie has to make a movie about Donald Trump's hair. It's... I'm kind of going to miss making fun of it. I mean, I, I've read that Vanity Fair article within the last month. I just, I go back to it when I need a little pick-me-up. The history of his hairline is, I don't, it's inexplicable. Like at some point he just should have been like, this no longer looks good. And the fact that he didn't get to that point is really what makes me realize like he just doesn't have good judgment like he got up every day and put on an orange layer of skin and did that hair up and put on that flammable tie and was like yeah this is my best self and then he pushed a button for diet coke i wonder if he also had a button that played ymca on demand <laughs> i'm not I sure hope so. I think he has forever ruined that song for me. Although I loved that he and nobody else understood like what that song is actually about. I always think it's funny when like Republicans do Born in the USA. They just have no clue about what Bruce Springsteen is about or what that song is about. Or they'll pick something from John Cougar Mellencamp and they just have no clue. But that's just a level of no clue that I've <laughs> like this gay hookup anthem as as your campaign song. I don't insane. We're at the end of we're on the other side of these crazy three weeks. I mean, it was like violent coup attempt impeachment inauguration it was like whiplash there was the crazy kind of three months before that where it was just this denial that the election had ended the way it did and it's the natural conclusion of like five crazy years that's just this administration there's crazy years before that too what has kept you going like how do you, how do you keep going and keep Keep being a Pollyanna, especially. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because I was I was thinking about this question because um, you know through the magic of 
podcasting, I, I knew you were going to ask it. And it dawned on me that all my answers, or most of my answers anyway, are really just from the past year because sadly enough, I almost can't remember a time when we weren't in quarantine. Um, it's been so all-encompassing. But I think if I were going to extrapolate, for sure, Rachel Maddow is one who has kept me going. She's amazing. And the truth and the scholarly way in which she unveiled the truth every night was so important, I think, to putting all of this stuff in context. Um, and then also Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter, which I don't know if you get that, but that I think also was putting so much of this in context. And I hope she compiles them into a book someday because they were pretty pretty important. I'm just as bad at newsletters as I am at podcasts. These are really short though. But in a, in a wild fit of believing I can be a different person, I did just sign up for Dan Rather's newsletter or, or whatever new thing he's doing oh. because I adore, adore, adore Dan Rather. The fellow Texan. Fellow Texan who also says Missouri the right way. The rest of my family is actually from Missouri. And I delight in every time he, he says it correctly, like my family does. Dan Rather definitely kept me going. I think also I need to give a tip of the hat to Randy Rainbow because you have to laugh. And he laughed in such a, he made me laugh and also appreciate musical theater. And those are two very, very important things. I also thought about the amazingness. We've talked about Hamilton a couple of times, but every time I went to a protest, inevitably there were multiple signs that borrowed from Hamilton. And it became, you know, Hamilton was, is a musical about how the language of the revolution would have been hip hop. And I love that inevitably the language of the resistance became Hamilton so much that it was, you know, referenced twice in, in the inaugural poem. And I, I just like that, that was created in a very specific moment in time, this piece of art. I, I, Talk about serendipity. Hamilton definitely scored the resistance, which is a pretty amazing accomplishment for anyone, let alone someone younger than me. <laughs> well, gets to live, see his legacy in real time, which is pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. I had worried... I, I, unlike you, can remember what I like to call the before times trademark. I don't think, I, I don't think you can trademark that. <laughs> Speaking as your friendly lawyer. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to, as soon as I get off this, this call with you, I'm going to go into the USPTO and we'll see about that. <laughs> I've been using it with a TM just to signal to the market my intent to trademark and own 
the phrase before times. Well, before you before you look into that, why don't you look into not small things? <laughs> I was I was worried going into you know the the last administration. You know, there were the the kind of months in between where we still had Obama where I felt like people, like a lot of us kind of knew this was going to be bad and we knew the reasons why it was going to be bad. There were, there were, there were some among us that really were not blowing off the connection to Russia. We, we saw the intent. We took, we took this administration on their word and, and there were people that were calling those of us insane. I remember going to the first women's march in DC, which was amazing and cathartic. And I was really worried that we would be one and done with this because I think if there's one thing that became really clear to us in the last handful of years, which is the Democratic Party, and I'm not just talking about the leadership or the DCCC and the DNC, I'm talking about the, you know, the collective voters with the exception of, you know, a, a really loyal backbone. The party has been on autopilot a little bit, like sleepwalking, it's all going to work out. We've been waiting for these kind of magnificent candidates to come out of nowhere and capture all of our attention. And, and when they don't, we just assume our institutions will, will hold and survive. We've learned that really painful lesson that at the first women's march, I, I really worried, like we're going to do this one symbolic big thing and we're going to do this big thing really well. And then we're gonna go back to our normal lives. Um, and I have to say the thing that kept me going was first during the weekend of the Muslim ban that people flooded airports across the country, lawyers and, and just people showing support in general for immigrants. And then the boycott of Uber, who was <laughs> surge pricing. And I thought, oh, no, we're really going to do this. Like, we're really going to show up every single time these guys think they're going to get away with it and i think what's amazing is you know as soon as the inauguration was over i saw somebody on twitter say is it too early to start thinking about the midterms and i was just so full of love because it's it's not it's never too early to start thinking about the midterms Mitch McConnell is clearly already setting the table for the midterms. So I, I think what has kept me going really is watching this party wake up and not take the backbone for so much granted for showing up and fighting for people and fighting for the right things. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the deep bench of talent in the party that's stepping forward, especially women, and even more especially women of color. And it's refreshing that they're not, for the most part, and especially now with my classmate Jamie Harrison running the DNC, they're not 
stepping into a wind tunnel with all this wind in their face, right? If anything, I hope the wind is at their back. What do you hope you never have to see or talk about again? (laughs) Well, you've already mentioned YMCA. That's definitely, that's done. I don't, I don't want to hear that song anymore. Um, I don't want to talk about bingo cards anymore. <laughs> I don't want to know what was on your bingo card for 2020. <laughs> I did not have you not wanting to talk about bingo cards on my 2021 bingo card. <laughs> oh man, we're never getting away from that. We aren't. Um, okay, I'm going to join you in what I know is your complete reverence for Lawrence O'Donnell and say, I do not want to hear from men in the media who are any less than Lawrence O'Donnell. Because honestly, it's not that hard to be generous and gracious and, you know, non, non-judgmental. Lawrence does it every night. Just get with the program. I don't want to hear men on Twitter complaining about how they don't like that Lawrence O'Donnell starts his show by thanking Rachel Maddow for what she has just done on her show. I'm glad I did not see that. That would make my blood boil. I love him truly for that every night. It's amazing that he stops and just says, I want to thank you for this thing that you did, or I want to talk about it a little bit more, or I'm making space in my show for you to finish your thought. And I think it's totally genuine. And the fact that men see that as so offensive is like, what is, what is real, dude, what is your problem with seeing a man compliment a woman, an extraordinary woman? Joe Biden would not be offended by that. No, he wouldn't. Joe Biden is the kind of president that I feel like Lawrence O'Donnell might have written when he was on the West Wing. Oh, it's all coming together. It is all coming together. It's, we're kind of, we might be hopefully coming into like that show feeling a little bit realer again. That would be amazing. We're going to end with talking about what's the one thing you're really looking forward to. I don't want to end on a like womp womp note. Do we have to choose just one thing? (laughs) Well, I've already mentioned Jamie Harrison as head of the DNC. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he will put in place and what we can accomplish with him at the helm. I think that's such an amazing choice. Um, Also, I'm really looking forward to eating in restaurants again after I get my my vaccine. Actually, after everybody gets their vaccine, because just because I get my vaccine does not mean I'm going to suddenly start doing all the things I did in the before times. But restaurants, oh my God, I'm tired of cooking three meals a day. And I've gotten really good at it. So I'm talking about restaurants that are like really like big foodie level restaurants because I need it to be worth all of the anxiety that I'm going to have eating in a restaurant again. And I need a haircut. I really need a haircut. 
I won't let my husband cut my hair. I've cut his hair and it looks pretty darn good. But I need to go to my hairdresser. Yeah, again. I've gone a year. And I and I've gone a year without a haircut. It's it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the pandemic to get under control because I really miss theater and I really miss live music and I'm very attuned to you know we have friends who are performers that can't perform right now and it's really affecting them profoundly and it's very hard to watch them not be able to practice their craft and engage in the things that they love but I also just really miss the thrill of of live performances um I'm going to plug, I'm going to do a plug since we're breaking all the rules about this, the end of this podcast, I'm going to do a plug for um, Save Our Stages, which our friend Leslie is working on promoting, which will help support uh, music venues, keep them open and ready for, for when we're, we're ready to go back. Do it. Can we put a link to Save Our Stages on our website? We're going to put a link and we're going to we're going to do a solid for Leslie. Um, I'm also looking forward to being in the same room together. That would be nice. We're, we we talk about that often. We should get the playlist, the very Prince heavy playlist ready for that dance party. As of this morning, though, I saw something that I was like, this is what I'm really looking forward to doing. And that is keeping Sarah Huckabee Sanders from becoming the next governor of Arkansas. I refuse to see that happen. I just cannot see that happen. That is going to be a hell of a race. It's going to be ugly for all the wrong reasons. Yes. I will leave that to you. And I'm instead going to focus on the races for mayor in New York City and Boston. You know I'm a big supporter of Maya Wiley. I do know this. In New York City. Um, maybe we can plug my upcoming fundraiser for her as well. Is that allowed? Plug away. Okay. February 12th. Come talk affordable housing with Maya. We'll put a link to that on our website as well. We're going to do And then Boston. Boston. Um, was already heating up and then Marty Walsh got called to DC to be the secretary of labor. I think I missed that. Yeah. And now there are multiple women, multiple women of color, multiple women of color who went through the emerge Massachusetts program, just like I did, who are running to be the next mayor of Boston. And it is thrilling. Okay, we'll look for that link on the website. So is this the end of our first episode? This is the end. We survived it. Oh, my God. For those who can't see me, which is everyone other than my children, I'm sitting here with a giant blanket over my head, and I hope it's all worth it. (laughs) I hope you can't hear any of the background noise on this podcast because I'm really hot right now. This is a lot. Okay, well, let's wrap it up so you can get your temperature back to normal. Well, that's it for us. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Not Small Things. 
You can check us out at www.notsmallthings.com, where you can also find links to Save Our Spaces and Maya Wiley. And follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Not Small Things. And we will talk again next week. 